This is Archive Atlanta, episode 109, African-American Volunteer Militia. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week I'm talking about volunteer militia formed by black men in Atlanta from the 1870s through about 1903. And I know that longtime listeners are about to call a wellness check on me because my disinterest in military history has been well-shared and well-documented. My personal opinion on the Civil War is that it's been memorialized ad nauseum in the South. There's no lack of historical markers, documentaries, books, podcasts. You do not need my very uninformed take on battles or war of any kind. And to add to that, I just don't understand military terminology very well. It's probably connected to my terrible spatial awareness, but when somebody wants to talk about battalions and infantry and, you know, they went north and over the woods, I don't know, my eyes just glaze over. But it's a new year, 2021. I'm trying to push myself to learn more things, things that may not interest me, but will help me understand Atlanta's history even better and honestly the country's history. In my years of research, I often came across the names of Atlanta's earliest black business owners and community leaders, and they were often called captain or lieutenant. And I didn't stop to question why. Like, did they fight in the Civil War? Did they fight for the Union? What was the deal? This episode started when I went to research Andrew Hill, who was buried in Rest Haven, which is the inaccessible African-American burial grounds at Westview. So among the list of his life accomplishments was captain of the Fulton Guards. And that opened the door to the rabbit hole of militia history, volunteer militia, and how black men, just years out of the slavery system, navigated this world. And if you're like me, and all of this seems foreign, let me start with some basic history and explanation of the militia system of the United States. The U.S. Army was officially formed in 1775 to fight the British. It was not very large, not at all what we think about today. So there was a need to have local militias in each state that the president could call upon when needed. In 1792, Congress passed an act forming these groups as well as rules to go along with them. And the rules were that they were open to all white men between the ages of 18 to 45. Each member was responsible for equipping themselves with a musket, a bayonet, and a belt, and sometimes a uniform. The militia were organized into divisions, brigades, regiments, battalions, and companies. I have to give a shout out to my husband here, who was a former Marine and (laughs) explained the literal basics of military categorization. So I'm across the room like, what is a battalion? I don't understand. And he helped me understand by just, it's a unit of measurement. So this is going to come in a little later when I talk about Georgia's laws. It was George Washington who first used militia in 1794 during the Whiskey Rebellion. And so the following year, Congress passed another act, which made them a permanent fixture. And then in 1808, they granted federal funding for weapons and uniforms. Now, the War of 1812 changed this because state militias turned out to be unreliable. And I think it was in New York, uh, the militia there just flat out refused to fight. Obviously, that's an issue. So afterward, the U.S. government decides that each state would form a volunteer army unit. So not officially militia, um, but there were many volunteer armies that consisted entirely of militia that had volunteered together as a group. 
1862, another militia act passed during the Civil War, allowing African-American males, ages 18 to 45, to serve in these units. There were also ethnic militias in the state of Georgia. There was Irish and German militias in Augusta, but these were, of course, listed as white. In 1868, the military force in Georgia, so this is about three years after the Civil War, it was really the Georgia Military Institute, um, there was volunteers, and then there was local militia. And again, local militia is just men of the appropriate age who would be called upon to defend the state if they needed to. Title 11 of the state code said that arms and accoutrements shall be supplied to the volunteer corps by decision of the governor. Now remember, this is Reconstruction. So there is a Republican governor, Bullock, um, Democratic legislators are very concerned that the power is with the governor, so he can choose to arm whichever militia he likes. And so there's, you know, there's concern he's going to arm the ones he likes and not arm the ones he doesn't like. By 1872, there's a new Democratic governor, James Milton Smith, and the General Assembly changes the law to automatically arm companies that existed prior to 1861. And then anyone after 1872, it's all up to the governor's discretion. But guess who existed prior to 1861? White men. So there's pushback on this. There's actually a bipartisan deal was brokered that made it more neutral, um, and it made it where the governor had kind of sole discretion over every decision. In 1873, the U.S. Congress passed an act reinstating provisions from 1808. So basically, the Confederacy did not get any federal militia funds for seven years, and now they're due to get all this money back and all these weapons, but it was a U.S. law, so it would only be distributed if there was no discrimination going on. And Georgia was said to get $47,000, which was a lot. And so there are pressures to allow black militias to form. Immediately after Georgia was readmitted to the Union, it was newly elected black Georgia legislators that pushed for black militias. And one of these reasons is because they feared for their safety. Georgia Republicans um, during Reconstruction did not legislate any kind of defense force to protect them in the post-Civil War period. There were other states that had done that. So on one hand, military service or activity in the Victorian area, early Victorian area, was definitely the epitome of masculinity. Um, you know, it was proved themselves model citizens. So there was that aspect. But then once Reconstruction fails in 1877, these men are also like, whoa, you guys just left us here with all of these angry white men and no protection. The first state-sanctioned African-American volunteer militia company was in Savannah, and they were all former U.S. Army soldiers that had fought for their freedom in the Civil War. Within the month, the governor of Georgia gets three more requests from black companies. And the rules of volunteer military organizations were fairly simple. You had to have at least 53 members. You must petition for approval from the governor. And then once he granted that, you could elect your officers. And then those leaders would apply for arms and accoutrements from the state. In 1878, the African-American component of state volunteers was at 42 companies. There were 40 infantry, one artillery, uh, one cavalry. Now, only 25 of those infantry divisions were actually active, but what that meant was that in a time of crisis, you know, if Georgia needed to, they could count on 62% of quote-unquote colored troops. Atlanta had five different volunteer militia for black men, and I'm going to go through them briefly as well as tell a story or two from one of their prominent leaders. The first was the Atlanta Light Infantry. 
In August of 1873, Jefferson Wiley and over 50 other black men, most of them active in the Republican Party, petitioned the governor for incorporation. Wiley was elected commander of the troops, and he received 50 Springfield rifled muskets and 2,000 ball cartridges from the state. He was born and raised in Atlanta, lived on Decatur Street, and worked as a messenger for Hannibal Kimball. When he applied for his Freedman's Bank account, his race was listed as white. Two years later, it was listed as almost white. And that is a complex conversation about colorism that I purposely avoid. Um, But lighter skin tones really place people in that time in positions of prominence. uh, And then normally, if you had a darker skin tone, you were not. The Atlanta Light Infantry wore blue uniforms, and they rented a room at the armory to house their weapons. There was a little drama in 1877. The militia was behind on their rent, um, so there was a court injunction placed on all their belongings along with their guns. And everything's taken out, so think of like an eviction. Um, All of their weapons are put out on the curb for sale. But no one at the courthouse realized that legally these 50 guns were the property of the state of Georgia. So there was kind of a halt. They took the weapons and the American flag, um, and they sold everything else. Now, the militia only owed $32 in rent, um, which at that time still wasn't a small amount. But their side of the story is that the property owner was working with them to repay. They had a repayment plan. So this eviction was totally out of left field and took them by surprise. They had asked for their arms back and were refused. And this is a first glimpse into how the white power structure of the city felt about these militias and how they subtly tried to disband them from day one. But we'll get there. The Fulton Guards, initially going by the Fulton Blues, were formed in 1874. After approval from the governor, the first four officers were elected. Serving as captain was James Williams, first lieutenant Smith Easley, second lieutenant Frank Blake, and third lieutenant Willis Williams. Smith would later become captain and serve until 1883, and three years after him, the title goes to Andrew Hill. And while I can't tell you about all of these men, I do want to tell you about Andrew Hill, since his headstone spawned all of this research. He was enslaved by Warren Hill, and then in 1891, he started working as a janitor for the Peters Land Company. But he also owned real estate, at least three houses on Terry Street where he lived. His wife, Lula, founded Central Church. She established a student loan fund at Clark University, and she was a high-end dressmaker for the Peachtree Street elite. He had five children. One son became a doctor, one daughter became a nurse, and I'm still researching the rest of them. The Washington Guards were formed in May of 1877 with 53 men, led by Captain Thornton Turner. Dubbed one of the, quote, best disciplined colored military companies in Atlanta, end quote, Captain Turner led the group exclusively until the 1890s. When new rules about militias came out in the 1880s, Turner wrote a letter to the governor citing the laws and explaining that the Washington Guards were legally allowed to exist. The Capitol Guards formed in 1878 with 56 men, led by Jackson McHenry, and consisting of well-known Republicans like C.C. Wimbush and Henry Allen Rucker. McHenry was a prominent Republican, but interestingly enough, um, he was employed as the janitor of the Customs House. So he was not wealthy, he was not a lead, he had no formal education, um, he was also in a time of colorism, very dark-skinned, and so a janitor was apparently the highest um, position he could hold. The Georgia Cadets formed in 1879 with 59 men. They had their own armory on Broad Street. And Moses Henry Bentley was their commanding officer, and he's become one of my most intriguing Atlantans. So the story is that he joined his enslaver to fight in the Civil War, um, but later became very active in politics. 
He operated a barber shop in Atlanta. He owned a roller rink. Um, he tried to get the earliest African-American park space opened up. And later, he even pr proposed a colony near Savannah. He was a busy dude. His cadets were also not without some drama of their own. In 1887, um, the cadets were marching, I think, to the West End for a picnic, which attracted the, you know, the whole neighborhood, I guess, of a military unit is going to come marching by, you're going to come out to see. And it turns out, he said, she said, but one of the non-military men wouldn't get out of their way or wouldn't um, listen to their commands. And one of the cadets actually um, got him with the bayonet. The governor's volunteers organized in 1879 with 53 men, and they were named to, of, to honor Governor Colquitt, who was sympathetic to black political causes. It was led by Jackson McHenry, Jesse Jones, and then, as I mentioned earlier, it merged with the Fulton Guards. The governor's volunteers were organized in 1879 with 53 men, um, and they were named to honor the governor at the time, who was sympathetic to black political causes. Now, it was led by a few people. It was actually led by Jackson McHenry at a time, um, but it would merge at some point with the Fulton Guards, which I will talk about shortly. So those were the five Atlanta companies, and part of military work is drilling and marching and practicing, and these are all things that required space. So it was difficult for any company, white or black, to properly train. And there's some really fun stories in the papers about encampments. Um, they would travel to other states. They would do mock battles in the city. In 1886, all of the companies held a grand military encampment and prize drill at the Atlanta Baseball Park led by the companies of McHenry and Andrew Hill. The best drilled militia won $100, there was $50 for uh, second place, and then there was a $25 third place prize. Four years later, there was a huge gathering of African-American militia at Piedmont Park. Um, they had prizes and barbecue. There was companies from Macon, Columbus, and of course, the Atlanta cadets, guards, and volunteers all joined. These militia would also march every year to celebrate Emancipation Day, typically starting at the Capitol, downtown, and then marching to Lloyd Street Church or another church. My absolute favorite story is from 1891. So all of the troops are meeting at Piedmont Park again, it's, you know, troops from across the state, and here comes the governor's volunteers. At this point, they're being led by Jackson McHenry, and the judges determine when they see them in the distance that their uniforms are way too new and their guns are way too shiny. And what had happened is, as they're marching to the park, when they get to the edge of the park, they break line and they run into a building. And in there is boxes of, you know, freshly tasseled brand new uniforms and brand new guns. And so there's just internal, you know, I guess fun male drama. But, you know, they, the other companies are like, you know, this is not fair. We did not. We would have had new stuff, too, if we could. Um, and so they were disqualified from that competition. In July of 1880, Atlanta pursues forming a second battalion of Georgia's volunteer colored troops with these five infantry companies. So the second colored battalion was led by Jefferson Wiley, um, later William Pledger, who's a newspaper man from Athens, John Thomas Grant, and then later Floyd Henry Crumbly, who operated a grocery store on Auburn Avenue. They also had officers like E.R. Carter and Dr. Butler, both big names in Atlanta. I have understated the desire of white leadership in Georgia to end these black militias, and it's a hard thing to summarize, but as Jim Crow laws grow in strength in the late 1880s, the idea of large groups of armed black men is not just going to fly. And it's not that they were 
no one's really concerned about 40 guys with some old muskets. Um, it was really the idea. It was the challenging of masculinity by black men to white men. It was barely okay in 1870, but by this point it had become a problem. So in 1885, the Georgia General Assembly passed a law that made all volunteers under one umbrella. So they made them all Georgia volunteers. And under there, there was one white faction and one colored faction. And the limit on the colored unit was 20 infantry, one artillery, and one cavalry. So this is the beginning of the limiting of black militia power. In 1898, the U.S. entered war with Spain after the USS Maine was bombed in Cuba. Local black troops were ready and willing and, dare I say, excited to defend the U.S. and Cuba. There was a sham battle exercise at Brisbane Park, which still stands today, open field in Mechanicsville, um, where the Washington Guards and the governor's volunteers met to play war, for lack of a better term. I try to imagine this. So apparently each militia left their armory on Forsyth Street and then marched to Mechanicsville, to a rousing audience that was in the stands, and then um, they did basically a mock battle. The Decatur Street Recruitment Office is overrun with volunteers, and a black unit is created in the volunteer army, and this was led by F.H. Crumley, uh, later Thomas Grant, but the captain was a white man from New York. So at this point, George is kind of saying, okay, we can have black troops, but they're going to be led by a white man. Preparations for a war with Spain strained black manpower and state militias. Georgia's governor, Candler, disbands the 2nd Battalion of Georgia Volunteers colored. Militias could still exist, and they marched in parades, and they traveled out of state, but for the first time, they had to do that without ball cartridges, so they were carrying empty weapons. The Spanish-American War had huge impacts on black troops, and there are several hundred-page dissertations on this, so I'm not going to attempt to explain the complexities, but post-war attitudes towards black troops changed a lot. By 1900, the legislator changed the law so that there were no more than 60 companies of white infantry and there was only seven black infantry. One of those black units was in Atlanta, and so that formed with a combination of the Fulton Guards and the governor's volunteers, and they were led by Andrew Hill. In 1903, U.S. Congress passed the National Militia Act, which is also known as the Dick Act. And it was signed by President Roosevelt, and it formalized the beginning of each state having their National Guard. In 1904, there was a National Guard troop encampment, and this was not in Georgia, but I can't remember the state, where a white soldier would not salute to a black captain. And after that incident, black soldiers are portrayed in the newspapers as racist caricatures. Black men continued to march publicly to dispel these myths, but there was no changing it. In 1905, the General Assembly approved the act to abolish the colored troops of the state of Georgia. And this effectively ended all African-American militia or volunteer army participation. In 1917, there is a lone mention of a petition signed by 100 men asking Georgia to reinstate the colored militia, but it never happened. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's first African-American militias, their names, who led them, and some tales from their marches, competitions, and sham battles. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support this project. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.